Hello, Mountain. It's good to see everyone. Glad you're with us. If you're a guest, welcome. Welcome to Mountain. My name's Ben. Um, can, I, can I begin with a kind of personal question? Is that all right? Okay. Is your family weird? That's what I thought. Is, um, are, is your home a little messy? Someone help that lady back there. <laughs> Are the people you live with a little dysfunctional? Like all the time, pretty much? And Yeah. Ever been embarrassed by someone who's related to you? Raise your hand if you are. Yeah. Like you are right now about that person who's raising their hand next to you? Yeah. So we're calling this series Home for Christmas, right? Home. And those two ideas put together, that gets to be kind of exciting, home and Christmas, right? And uh, next week, we'll talk about some of the losses and the loneliness of our homes at Christmas and how the peace of Christ really makes such a difference. It can be very meaningful. I invite you back. Then, then uh, the week after that, we're into Christmas services, and we have 16 of them, and uh, you just heard about those. And those, they start on the 22nd, and I encourage you to come here on Mountain Road on the 22nd, um, 23rd, uh, Bel Air and here, and the 24th, uh, more services. The cro- most crowded ones are 4, 6, and 8 on the 24th. So just so you know that, I, try to leave those for guests if you're able. If you're not, or if you have guests, bring them anytime you want. But uh, that's what's coming up. And today we're talking about broken homes, this idea of, of home and how things are less than perfect sometimes in our homes. You know, one of the most wonderful things about Christmas is that it brings families together, you know? Uh, by the way, you know what one of the worst things about Christmas is? Yeah, it brings families together, exactly. Because sometimes, as much as we want to say that, that family is, and family and Christmas is a time for joy and warmth and love and life-giving relationships, sometimes there's extra stress and there's conflict and it's awkward and some of it is just because of the way our, our families are and the way you and I are. And the truth is that home can be hard and that even talking about this, as you anticipate what's coming in the days ahead, some of us feel kind of depleted, like, oh, it's going to suck the life out of me. Or defeated about what's going on in your home life, or discouraged in some other way, or even disgusted. We need an encouraging word today. My friend Tim uh, was telling me about his family, and uh, here's a picture of his extended family. looks nice enough, and a recent wedding they had, and he said, normally we have great times and all this, but it's a little, he's a little nervous this year, because after the election, it's like there's all this political tenseness, and he knows it's going to blow up and be this big mess, uh, and he's kind of dreading the family coming together. He says, let me explain my family to you. He says, let me put it in electoral college terms. And so here's a picture he's, as he mapped out for me of his family. So it's like, parents over here are like these huge Donald Trump fans, and he's got what he calls his flaming liberal sister and they can't keep their mouth shut and he's like we're not going to be talking about you know peace on earth we're going to be having political warfare around the dinner table and that's the way sometimes it is as we think about families coming together uh, there's always that one family member that, that kind of likes to stir up trouble and maybe say something nasty sometimes and I had to laugh at this Dillard's Christmas sale ad take a look at this ad here just kind of notice the wording there there will be a special appearance of Satan between the hours of five and nine for the kids <laughs> And that's how you feel sometimes. Like, oh, so glad Satan could show up at our dinner and talk about the money thing or, you know, bring up the divorce or, you know, insult someone or get drunk or whatever. So, so we need some encouraging words and, and, and some good news for families like ours, don't we? And, and the good news is that the Christmas event, this watershed moment in history 
as it's recorded for us in Scripture, is filled with good news for families like ours. Let's dig into some of it today. To begin with, we kind of think about the holy family, as we sometimes call them. You know, we have this idyllic picture of them. Silent night, holy night, here they are. And you almost get the feeling they're at some birthing suite somewhere, you know, in a climate-controlled room. Mary, would you like some ice chips? Want me to push the button? We'll get the nurse in here to fluff up your pillows, is it? But no, folks, think about it now. It's easy to forget this pregnant woman had been bouncing on the back of a donkey for a couple of days. Her husband hadn't got any place for them to stay, so they're dirt poor and on a dirt floor, and there's blood and sweat and placentas and this messy stuff. This is poop on the floor, screams in the night. This is welcome to our world, Jesus. This is a real family, and this is a mess. And there's something important for us not to miss about that. It reminds us that God shows up and brings His grace into the mess of families. Has your, has your family ever been wounded or had some hurt fly around because of some rumors or gossip or misunderstanding between people? Don't forget, Mary was an unmarried teenager in a small town who got pregnant. You don't think she knows something about rumors and gossip and misunderstanding? You ever had that family gathering and you know that one marriage is on the rocks and you don't even know if they're going to show up together or maybe someone's quietly contemplating a divorce? There's tension. Don't forget exactly where Joseph was. The Bible says he was like, you know, I just need to put Mary away and start over. You ever feel like you're just a bad parent? Christmas can bring that out, you know, because everything isn't perfect and the cookies and the kids aren't, you know, and the, the mess and the can feel kind of like a bad parent. Well, don't forget, Jesus' own family took a road trip when he was 12 years old down to Jerusalem to the temple. On the way back, Mary looks at Joseph. Joseph looks at Mary. I thought he was with you. I thought he was with you. It's like they lost their kid. I, I, it's understandable, but, I mean, he is the son of God, for crying out loud. You think you keep an eye on him. I'm sure they felt like a bad parent. You ever felt embarrassed by someone in your family? Like, don't pay any attention to them. They're just a little nuts, and you had to apologize for them a little bit? You ever feel like this family right here? Yeah? Like, like there's always that one weird niece that doesn't fit in? <laughs> Did you know Jesus' family felt the same way about him? His earthly family. Brothers and sisters and moms sometimes even. Matthew chapter 3 reminds us one time Jesus is teaching. He enters into this house and he's got these huge crowds around him. He's saying all these things. And when his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. Oh, he's out of his mind, they said. Oh, thanks for the support. If you've ever felt misunderstood by your family or like if you try to bring up matters of faith, they just want you to shut up, tell you that you're nuts. I think even Jesus' family had some of that going on sometimes. You see, Jesus' family wasn't perfect, and this isn't an accident. This is part of God's design from the beginning. It isn't like Jesus sort of drew a bad card and happened to end up in a wacky family, but no. No. This is part of the good news of Jesus coming. Good news for people like us and the kind of families we live in. Look at the way Matthew, who opens our New Testament scriptures, tells us about the coming of Jesus. If you go there to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, how does it begin? How does the whole New Testament story of Jesus begin? Well, it begins this way. 
a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. And after that, it goes on to list a lot of names that a lot of us ignore and skip over when we read through the Bible. But it's an attempt to list the ancestral line connecting from Abraham, the great promise of Abraham, right down through David, the great hero David, to the Hebrew people, right down to Jesus. And in our culture today, when we want to sort of say someone's important or that they are legit, we, we just list on our resume our accomplishments and, and that kind of thing. But in that culture, it was a very communal culture. And as Tim Keller reminds us, the reason you put a genealogy there is it's like a resume. It's, it's, a, it's an identification with your tribe, your clan, your pedigree. Because the people you're connected with says to the world, this is who I am. And so, before we get into who Jesus is or anything else, we begin with the genealogy to sort of show how important he really is. And by the way, people did with their genealogies back then the same thing that we do with our resumes today. If you, you know, sometimes you kind of conveniently don't mention certain things, and you're not going to mention oh, that one time you got fired. You're not going to put that, yeah, I bombed out, and that. No, you, you, don't, you don't put that on your resume. And they did the same thing with their genealogies. They scrubbed them. They edited them very conveniently. If you had unsavory characters in your family, you didn't, you didn't bring them up. You just left them out. Because you want to put out there something that will make you look good and that will make you convince everyone that you're high class and you have these respectable family roots. And so what's interesting is when the Bible starts trying to describe Jesus and his genealogy, it does exactly the opposite. There's a shocking difference between this genealogy and every other ancient genealogy. First of all, there are five women listed here in the genealogy in the verses that follow. It may not strike us as strange, but in that culture, patriarchal, male-dominated society, it was actually never done. Never. And here, there are five. So right off the bat, we get a clue, a hint, that something is going to be different about Jesus, and that people that sometimes are outsiders or don't fit or aren't mentioned or are overlooked are somehow included in this family. Right away we get a hint. And then when you begin to look more closely at who those women are, wow, you realize that three of them, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, aren't even Jews. <laughs> Is that crazy? I mean, the whole point of the genealogy was to say to the Jewish people, Jesus is legit. He comes right from Abraham, and he comes right, he's a son of David. That was important. And yet, oh yeah, he's got a couple of Gentile women in his ancestry. That's really bizarre. And if that wasn't bad enough, they're not just any Gentiles, they're Canaanites and a Moabite. You've got to understand that to the ancient Jews, those people were an abomination. They were unclean. These are the people that weren't even allowed into the temple or tabernacle to worship. These were racial outsiders, long-standing hatred and animosity between them, where the racial slurs would go back and forth, and the hate crimes between each other were, were, went on for centuries. And yet, isn't it interesting that right here, that bad fruit on Jesus' family tree is mentioned right out loud in Jesus' family because of the way God arranged it. It gets worse. Even more surprising is that the way that Matthew names these women, it kind of forces everyone to dredge up these dark old dirty family secrets that nobody really wanted to remember. I mean, these women are connected to some of the most sordid, nasty, immoral incidents in the entire Bible. 
And the way that Matthew mentions them kind of brings all those stories up. Look at Matthew chapter 1, the next couple of verses, 2 and 3. Abraham is the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez. And then he goes on to say, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. And you hear the record go, it's like, oh, why did you have to mention Tamar? Because Tamar, you remember, is the one who dressed up like a prostitute because that was the way she could trick her father-in-law, Judah, into sleeping with her, which was an act of incest, which was a terrible, embarrassing blemish on the family. And truthfully, Perez wasn't even descended, Jesus wasn't even descended from, from Zerah. It was Perez, but, but he mentioned Zerah and Judah and Tamar, so we have to bring the whole sordid soap opera to mind. To remember the whole thing, it's like a bad reality ancient, ancient TV show. In fact, they've done a little research and they figured out that the last name for Tamar and Judah is Kardashian. <laughs> Just kidding. And yet, it is out of this dysfunctional family that Jesus comes. Isn't that interesting? The Savior of the world from a broken family for broken families. And then in verse 5, it says, And Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Oh, don't mention Rahab. Another Canaanite prostitute. Isn't it great to have two of those in the family? (laughs) Verse 6, And Jesse, the father of King David. Ah, finally. (sighs) King David, royalty. You know, he's our guy. David was the father of Solomon. Yeah, Solomon. Then he could have stopped there, but he doesn't. He goes on to mention, oh yeah, remember, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Kind of had to bring that up. Didn't have to bring it up, but chose to. And this is the reminder that this had been Uriah's wife is a reminder of one of the most embarrassing stories, the incident of David with Bathsheba. It's a tragic and dark spot on their history. David, at a younger time in his life, was a fugitive running for his life from King Saul, and he had a group of mighty men and warriors who came around him and stood up for him and risked everything for him, and one of those guys was Uriah. David owed his life to Uriah. But years later, when David became king, Uriah was still fighting for David out in a battle, and during that time, David went and slept with his wife. She got pregnant, so the only way to cover up that he thought of was to kill Uriah, had a hitman do that, covered the whole thing up. And then married Bathsheba, and that's the family line of Jesus. You see, even the greatest heroes have deep flaws. The Bible reminds us of that, as this adultery and murder cover-up shows. And Jesus shows up in that kind of dysfunctional family line. You've got moral outsiders, you've got adulterers, you've got incest, you've got prostitutes, you've got cultural outsiders, you've got, you got gender outsiders, you've got racial outsiders, you've got all of this stuff, people who according to the, present, the law of Moses couldn't even come into the presence of God, and yet God says, I'm coming among you, and guess what? I'm making a new family, and these people are in it. These people are in it. And that's why we say it's, as the angel said, good news of great joy for all people that Jesus has come among us. If you've been cut off and on the outside, you can be brought into Jesus' family. Having messed up people in your family doesn't cut you off from God. Messy families is exactly where God wants to come in and show up and bring His grace and transform. And that changes everything about how we think about our families. So let's get practical for a little bit. 
Um, and to do that, I've asked my dear friend, Laura Beth Richardson, to come and share with you a little bit. Mark, her husband, and Laura Beth and their family have been some of our closest, dearest friends for a long, long time. Mark served as an elder here, and Laura Beth's taught in a lot of, uh, been involved in the church in a lot of ways, mountain kids and women's ministry and worship and all that. Today, I just want Laura Beth to tell you about her family. Would you do that? I will. All right, will you welcome my friend, L.B. Richardson? <laughs> Well, I told my um, dear brother in Christ, Ben, a few months ago, the backstory behind a family portrait that hangs in our home. And I'm standing here because of my big mouth, but also because I want to honor God. And I know that it brings him great joy when his children choose to walk in the truth. So let's just take a minute to dwell on the near perfection of this picture. Taken 12 years ago on the shores of the Chesapeake Bay, just before the setting of the sun. You can even see the Lantern Queen dinner boat just perfectly timed to glide by in the background, joined by one lone sailboat. You know, even the ducks are perfectly scattered in the water. And you can see this couple just basking in the, the moment and the joy of their family, clothed in color-coordinated outfits and looking appropriately happy, as we should, for we're just all so grateful to be together in the presence of the photographer commissioned to capture this holy moment. But I'm not here to talk about that today. Most of us have learned one way or another that when things seem a little too perfect, um, it's because they usually aren't. And this is especially true when it comes to our families. And it's so easy to be deceived by shiny images of one another's lives. But the truth is that every one of us here today was born into and is currently living within a dysfunctional family. But I still believe that the vast majority of us are still doing our best in spite of the circumstances and the people we can't control, our own brokenness, and the junk that we drag around behind us. Um, growing up in the 60s and 70s as a preacher's daughter, I lived in another one of these picture-perfect families. But I learned very early about the art of pretense. Um, as the pastor's family, we did experience closer inspection than most people. My mother fiercely loved our family, but she had a will of iron. And I had a will of iron. And there were times when we hit and the sparks flew. And it seemed like often that was on a Sunday morning. So I can remember sitting in the car and my mom saying, Larbeth, if you know what's good for this family and for your father, you're going to put that smile on your face and it's going to stay till we're not only back in the car, but we are out of this parking lot. Now, I get that. I've said similar things like that to my own family, pulling up in the parking lot right out here at Mountain Christian Church over the last 30-some years since we've attended here. And I think that today, maybe attitudes towards the, the preacher's family have changed a little bit. But one thing that doesn't seem to change about human nature is our need to often judge others as less than 
so that we can feel better about ourselves. And this need supports a $3 billion a year celebrity gossip industry in our country. You know, when we watch Bradgelina's marriage fall apart, there's a little bit of comfort in that about our own busted relationships. And it can help to normalize our own sense of failure. I don't remember having a whole lot of role models growing up of adults who openly confessed their shortcomings and the flaws of their own families. I believe the overall message of my parents' generation was we keep our problems in the family, and this is nobody else's business but ours. But you know, one thing I do remember vividly is receiving dozens and dozens of those um, family update Christmas letters from my parents' friends, people in the church, and other families in ministry. Um, you know, where there's the several pages and they've Xeroxed a lot of pictures and they list every family member's accomplishments during the past year, the trips they'd taken, um, the successful careers that their children had landed in. And it was kind of like their generation's equivalent of Facebook, right? But they got one shot a year, and that was it. And they were going to make it count. Well, my parents wrote a Christmas letter, too, of course. And I can remember being so conscious every year about what was going to go in my paragraph. In fact, it was very motivating for me to try even harder during the year to achieve, maybe earn some more awards, some more accolades. Um, and I still continued into my 20s and 30s to think about what was going to go in my paragraph that year. And the first year I decided to stop teaching in public school and stay at home and be a full-time stay-at-home mom. My two oldest were four and two. And I also remember the Christ my parents' Christmas letter that year. I had one sentence. It said, Laura Beth is now a stay-at-home mom. So here's what my ego kicked in and said, listen, this is where your source of value and identity is right now. It's in being a mom. So you just better be the best darn stay-at-home mom on the shores of the Chesapeake Bay. And believe me, I tried. But as you might be able to guess, this didn't quite work out the way I'd envisioned. <laughs> There's nothing like marriage and becoming a parent to magnify your every flaw. <laughs> But relationships are also some of our best teachers. That if we stay in them when it's difficult, we can look more like Jesus Christ. And I know I've asked Jesus many times over <laughs> the last 30 years, was it really such a good idea to put so many incompatible people in the same family unit? So based on our very opposing personality styles and needs, my husband and I are pretty high on that incompatibility scale. Like, for example, I need some really simple things like affirmation, attention, affection, approval. And my husband needs some space from all that. Um, but we do have some things in common. Stubborn spirits, the desire to have our own way, and the, f the fact that we don't always um, fight fair to get it. But you know, the good news is that every one of our weaknesses has a corresponding strength. The flip side of stubborn is actually steadfast and faithful. And sometimes you actually have to stubbornly fight 
for your marriage and for your relationships. And because of that fact, my husband and I have been stubbornly married for nearly 35 very stubborn years, okay? But now we'll go back to the, we'll go back to the picture. Yeah, because I'm going to pick on everybody in our family today. Um, on the day this picture was taken, actually, we hadn't spoken to one another in days. Neither one of us can remember why, but it was most likely due to the fact that we had very different parenting styles, and we were in one of our classic arguments about how to parent our children. And this was a major source of contention for us, and you know it can still be even now, even though all of our kids are in their 20s. We really both lacked healthy conflict resolution skills, and we wasted so much time in our frustration to get through to the other person. But by God's grace and some good counseling, we have learned better ways to communicate since this day. But I am still suspicious if a couple says they rarely disagree or argue. Because the truth is, there isn't such a thing as a real, authentic relationship without conflict. In fact, conflict helps to build intimacy in a relationship if it's dealt with in a loving way. I recently met a delightful gentleman in his 90s, and he said to me, you know, my wife and I have been married 69 years, and we've only had one fight started on our wedding day, and it's still going on. (laughs) I asked him permission to steal his line. It was too good. Our two oldest sons at the time of this photograph could barely stand to even be in another's presence. In fact, I think hatred is probably the best word to describe how they felt towards each other. And in spite of my best efforts as a mom to try to take these two brothers with totally different ways of seeing the world and make them into best friends, I had failed. And our family vacations were often painful times. And on this day, as the photographer worked to try to capture our family's very best face, these two were quietly speaking very ugly words under their breaths to one another to undermine each other. And I can remember feeling devastated and so angry at them, but also at my husband for not just stopping the whole farce and banging their heads together. But it was more important for all of us to keep up appearances, even for a photographer, that we didn't even know. Our youngest son, really lovable kid, but let's just call him inflexible. You did not mess with this kid's schedule. And we had failed to give him the minimal 48-hour notice that he was going to have to skip soccer practice this evening. Not even a game, okay? Just the practice for this session. And he is actually crying in every single one of the over 200 shots that were taken that night. But he has a smile pasted on his face. Why do you think? Threats, right? of what was going to happen if he ruined the picture. The only clue you might have is his eyes and the area around him are red. And our beautiful daughter, we adopted her in 2001 at the age of four and a half to complete our little family. And here she is smiling and just lovingly lying across my lap. But please do not be deceived by this image either. 
Although I had always wanted to expand our family by adoption, and of course that also complemented the image of the loving, generous family that I wanted the world to see, I was in no way prepared for the way that my daughter and I were going to challenge one another. From the very first day I met her in Guatemala City, she did not really see a need for a mother because growing up in orphanages had taught her that female caretakers could not always be trusted to stick around. And she had no reason to believe that I was any different. And for several months, she would barely even let me touch her after we brought her home. And this was painful and did not fit in with my fantasy of being the loving, adoptive mom with the precious adopted child who was just so grateful to be part of a family. And she's probably more strong-willed than I am. And we've learned so much from one another over the last 15 years, what love really looks like. But on this particular day, she was so angry with me, um, probably because I'd refused to let her wear the outfit that she wanted to wear. So she decided she was going to sabotage the photo session by nearly every single picture making a face or refusing to smile. So the rest of the story is, this is not one picture. This is two pictures that were spliced together. Because even this professional photographer was not able to capture one shot of our entire family where we all looked happy. Photoshop was our only hope. <laughs> and the last thing that I'll mention that's been airbrushed is that I too am crying in this picture. I'm crying for all the failure that I was carrying in that moment as a wife and a mother that were magnified by the circumstances of that day. And I was also crying for all the ways I knew that my life and my family was not always what it appeared to be, but also crying with a longing to live in a more authentic way and not always feel that I had to hide my tears behind that smile. Well, thankfully, I've come a long way in understanding that really our wounds and our imperfections are the very place that can bring God the most glory when we reveal the true picture of our lives and our families to one another, that's when we can together experience grace, grace, unearned favor of God, which I, let, I just think a, be, a great way to sum up grace is that there is nothing we can do to make God love us anymore, and there is certainly nothing we can do to make him love us any less. But to know what grace is in your head and to experience grace here in your heart, they are two very, very different things. The only way you can experience grace is by accepting it in your flawed self, just as you are, not as you want the world to think you are or as the person that you're trying to pretend to be. Otherwise, grace just becomes one more thing in this life that we feel we have to earn. What I've discovered in the body of Christ in this church and through my own husband and children is that I have had people love and accept me exactly for who I am, flaws and all. Because those who have experienced grace know how to extend it to other people. You know, the church should be the one place where we don't feel we have to prove our worth to each other. And where we can, as it says in the book of James, confess 
our sins to each other, pray for each other so that we may be healed together in community. And confessing sin, can it causes shame initially. But let me just tell you, shame is not a bad thing. If you didn't experience shame, you would be a psychopath. So even in shame, we can have gratitude because shame is the doorway to repentance, which then leads us to grace, which is the bottomless well of God's love and forgiveness. And we here within the church, we are called to live in community together as deeply flawed, but yet even more deeply beloved children of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We are all on the same journey. And it's tempting to cover up the things that we're ashamed of. But guess what? It's our unveiled faces that bring God the glory. And God did not give you or me a face to reflect his glory, only to have you cover it up with a mask of perfectionism. And this is a greater problem for some of us than others. I know that. And I can tell you that God has redeemed many of the issues in our family Since this day 12 years ago. Hey, our oldest two may not be best friends, but they were the best men in each other's weddings last year. So that counts for something. (laughs) But we're still working on so many of the same issues. And we have some brand new ones. But I can stand here today in front of you, my family in Christ And know that God's will and desire is for the holy mess of our lives to be redeemed and transformed in time, according to his time. And we may not even live to see it in these physical bodies, but we can trust and wait with expectancy that it is going to happen, that that time will arrive. That's what Advent is all about, isn't it? We're waiting on God to bring the healing and hope of Jesus for which we all long for so desperately. We are all so much more alike than we are different. So as we wait for this, let's encourage one another to trust God's plan for restoration through the mystery and the birth of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I'll close with uh, the words of one of my heroes in the faith. The Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, sir. Thank you. So you can see why I wanted Lord Beth to tell you some of her story, because it's kind of all of our story in a way, isn't it? So we've heard about Jesus' family. We've heard about Lord Beth's family. Uh, before we go, let me just encourage you to realize that this grace that we're talking about is for you and your family. It's for you and your family. This beautiful grace that visits the planet through Jesus' messed up family line that can splice together our, our, our family portraits and, and knows what's going on behind all the glossy images we post. This grace is for you and for your family as well. You see it most clearly, I think, in this verse I love out of Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. This is right after the, the genealogy, the lineage that has revealed all of these flaws in Jesus' family. And then... The next thing the angel says to Joseph, out of that family, 
What is conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. God is still going to show up in this family and do something special just as he can and will in our own. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. You know what the name Jesus means? It means God saves. Because he will save his people from their sins. Friends, receive this incredibly good news of grace today for you and your family. The good news isn't just that Jesus you know, had a family that was filled with sinners like us. The good news is that Jesus came to save sinners like us and all the rest of the annoying, frustrating, sinful people in your family. There's no home, that means, therefore, that is too broken. There is no family that is too dysfunctional, no life that is too far gone, but what Jesus can't come and by His grace rescue, redeem, salvage, and save and work through. And this is incredibly good news. I hope that good news encourages you today. You know, let's just add one last footnote to this. What if this Christmas, instead of just receiving some of this good news of grace, what if we shared it with our whacked out families? What if you thought about the most annoying, frustrating, difficult, hard, awkward person in your family and decided to grace them in the same way that Jesus has graced you? Take a look at Romans 15, verse 7. It says this, Accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you. And this is how you bring praise to God. I don't know what gift you're going to give that annoying family member this year, but I'll tell you what they need more than anything is this the same sort of love and grace that Christ accepted you with and to find some way to share it in the name of Jesus. How powerful would that be? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for sending Jesus, for doing it in a way that just makes so clear that you've entered into the mess of our families and our lives to heal and redeem and to make possible new life through Jesus and in his name. We pray for this grace in our families. We pray for the renewing, healing, forgiving work as we turn our families more and more to you. God, we pray for your grace for the person who knows they need it the most. We pray for your grace for the person who thinks they need it the least. For we all need it so much. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.